So we're going to follow up. Um, last time I was here, I talked about love and glory as the motivation for what we do, right? Remember, we talked about David and his mighty men and uh, the idea of glory being the currency of heaven, meaning the thing we exchange. Like gold in heaven is everywhere. Literally, the streets and the cities are made of it. So it's super abundant, which means just like everything else, it doesn't carry the same value when everyone has as much of it as they want, right? Like, that's the idea. It's the scarcity of a thing that brings its value. Um, and, you know, in heaven, everyone has all of it. But in heaven, there's this, seems to be, according to the scriptures, right, this thing of currency in the glory of God because all glory needs to go to God. And so when he gives it, it's super valuable, and its primary and eternal value is in the fact that we get to give it back to him as worship. And so we see this exchange, right, in a really powerful way. And I don't want, it's the underpinning of everything we do. So we have to be reminded of it. I kind of used an example of something where, you know, God sightings in your life where I have my little daughter who didn't have any money, no way to make any money or earn anything. And she'd always want to give me gifts for my birthday or Christmas. And so she would go up in my bureau and take my used socks and underwear and shirts or whatever, and she'd wrap it up in Christmas paper and then give it to me as a gift. And I'd unwrap it, and there would be my socks and boxers and my stuff. And I would be like, this is awesome. Thank you so much. What an awesome gift. Um, because the intent was, it was like she's giving whatever she can give, what she has, right? And there's other times where... They've given me their toys or things, right, like that have literally no value to me existentially, right, like, uh, or, or of no use, or they're already mine. But it's the act of giving back, right? And we see that in Revelation when it says the elders, they cast their crowns before the feet of the Lord. But where'd they get those crowns? They didn't bring them with them. When they arrived, God gave them the crowns, right? And Paul talks about how these are laid up as rewards for us. They're ours. God generously gives them to us in exchange for serving and loving him so faithfully. And then in worship, when, when, when God's glory is seen on a whole nother level, they, in an act of worship, take the only thing they can think of that is glorious, and they give it back to him in recognition that he's the only one worthy. And there's this continuous theme. Worship comes from the recognition of his worth, right? Of his value, his glory. And so we talked about how Tom Brady is something like in sports and stuff that he's glorified among so many, but you put him and compared to eternal things, and he is just another dude who needs Jesus. And this perspective has to drive us in everything we do. Everything we do. There's a, there's a verse. I just want to jump into this because we go back. In Luke 16, 9 through 12, he talks about Jesus is saying to the crowd he's talking to and his disciples. He says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth. I want you to think about this, because Jesus is the one saying this. Make friends for yourselves 
by means of worldly wealth, meaning these things you possess, like use them for a purpose to make friends so that when it fails, so that when what fails? Worldly wealth. They may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little will also be faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little will also be unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? Do you hear the contrast? Worldly wealth versus what is genuine. And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? This is Jesus. He's saying like worldly wealth is a thing, but it has no eternal value. So use it now while it has some value. And the value that it has is that it prepares an opportunity for entrance into the eternal things. And glory is much the same way. The way glory works is like, sure, you can receive all the glory you want here on earth. But if you're using it for your own gain here and not to, to, to make friends that will usher you into the eternal dwellings, then you're using it wrong and it's going to burn up. It's all going back to him anyway, right? Whether by will or by force, you will bend the knee and you will know and recognize and declare that he is Lord. That's not optional. But now, while you can, use what we have to bring glory to God, to serve him, to do it, because it's going to prepare an opportunity for us to enter these eternal dwelling places where then there is stored up for us a crown. And that crown will become key for all of eternity as a primary tool and expression to worship God with. So we see that. That was this idea of for love and glory, right? I've said this many times over the years, but we have this backwards thinking because so many of us will do for money what we won't do for love, right? Like we will do whatever our bosses ask us to do, no matter how much we hate it, no matter how miserable it makes us, but we'll do it within the eight hours of that day, five days a week, sometimes more than that, because he gives us money. But then when it's our free time, meaning like our boss isn't paying us for what we're doing, we'll kind of do, that's our relaxed time. That's what we do, what we want. That's, and with our time, we'll give some here, we'll give some there. And the only, mo you're not getting money for what you do at that point. So there's got to be another motivation. And those motivations primarily tend to be love, relationships. But specifically with God, this is what we're doing. And we find ourselves willing to spend 40, 50, sometimes 60 hours every week without break, busting our butts, serving, building things, fixing things, uh, creating things for money. And it just, this is what Scripture is constantly pointing out is that we're, we're because we're worldly perspective, we, we have our eyes set on the things of the world here, it takes up the dominant attention, and we end up living from that place. 
uh, without recognizing it. Can you bring me up the book, the small book? I forgot to bring it. Thanks. <clears throat> anyway, that was the idea. And the conclusion was this, that because we're doing things for God's glory, it does not, most of the time, sometimes it does, but most of the time it does not feel self-serving or self-gratifying. A lot of times it's very sacrificial. It's very uh, scary. It goes against our inner desires and what we want, right? And our job is to, before God, hold that line. What he has asked us to do in Scripture, in, in our hearts and community, we hold the line. Even if no one else is joining, right? We talked about bringing down the tent and doing Christmas at the Crossing. There are those who have stepped up to own the responsibilities and help carry the weight of the mission, and they are actively trying to build teams and, and help people get the vision, help serve, because many hands make for light work. Uh, and if no one does answer those calls, no one does come to serve, it's up to them then to hold the line for the responsibility before God that they took on. And that is really hard, and it can be super discouraging. But we used the examples. We showed the example Scripture gives us of David and his mighty men where they held the line and they didn't retreat when everyone else took off. And God brought about a great victory that brought God glory. And in, in, in return, God glorifies those, in his, those people in his word forever and ever and ever, forever and ever. Like there will be no end to the glory that comes on the, name, the names of those mighty men. It is part of, this is the crazy Christian perspective here that is so mind-blowing, their names are part of Christ himself, his eternal word that will never fade, it will never cease, it will never end. Forever and ever, Christ, the word of God that became flesh, has enshrined in himself, in his forever story, the names of Josheb, Eleazar, Shema. These guys, who, what did they do? They just fought. They were people who were outcasts, in debt, bitter in soul when they came to David. And they are now forever enshrined for doing what they did because they did it for the glory of God or their war cry, right? Which was for the God of Israel. That's, that's what we're talking about. And forever, they'll be able to take that and give that back to the Lord as, as glory, When we look at that and we look at the church where the scripture says, like it literally Paul's praying and declaring that in the church may Christ be glorified. That's where it starts. That in here, we start with the church, right? Judgment starts in the house of God. The glorifying of God starts in the house of God. The representation of who God is on the earth starts here in the house of God. And as the church, we've, we've kind of allowed the glory of God to be usurped by so many lesser things. And that is the place to start, to start recognizing where is God not receiving the glory he deserves and that he's due, and how do we act in such a way to correct that? There's this awesome story in the end of uh, Samuel and the Kings, the Chronicles of King Josiah. He's this young little boy who becomes king at like 12 years old. And between 12 and 18, 
he's just, just imagine you're 12 years old and you get thrust to be the king of Israel. Right? You're taking on, you're trying to learn the ropes, you're learning how things are run, how the people before you did it, everything. But what happens if the person who did it before you was the worst king in the history of Israel? And he literally condemned Israel to judgment, to destruction because of what he did. And you're learning the ways from that guy. But you, in your heart, have this desire to know Yahweh yourself. And so at one point, Right around 18, it says that the law of God, the word of God, was found. It had been buried for generations in the temple treasuries, and it was found. And they bring it to Josiah, and they read it to him, and he hears it, and he's like, we're in trouble. The prophets have been clear. The teachings are clear. Like a king is to function like this and the people are to operate like this and we're to worship God and not have idols and false prophets. And what he does when he recognizes that we have robbed God of his place in this nation and his glory and as a result, we are in the path of destruction. And so he says, wait, but it says right here in the law that if his people who are called by his name will turn away from their wicked sins, repent, and seek his face, he will come and he will heal their land. And so he acts to restore the glory of God to the land and to his people. And he acts like radically. He brings every false prophet and has them executed. He has every uh, burial site of any other false prophet excavated, has their bones dug up so that they're not defiling the land, has all their bones burned into ash and scattered over the sea. He tears down every high place, every altar. He raises up worship for Yahweh again and brings revival to Israel. So much so that God says, Israel was doomed, but because of you and your generation, you will not see this. And there was this, there was this redemption of the glory of God where it belonged. And that was a real high point in Israel's history before the judgment came. And we see that acted. Why is that significant? Because he acted to restore the glory of God where it belonged. And the glory of God belongs in the church. It belongs in his gathering place, his home, his seat of power, his people. So it belongs in our hearts and our gatherings. And everything we do, it should be about, is God being glorified? When we come to pray, is God being glorified? When we meet as life groups, is God being glorified? It's our goal to bring glory to God in our interactions, in our behavior, in our speech, in the way we love each other, in the way we serve each other, in the way we interact with each other, right? Like, are we being a refreshing person or not? Are our attitudes glorifying God in front of our children, our family, our friends, our coworkers, our, like... Everywhere, like this is why we exist. And so there's corrective things we have to seek God for and say, God, how can I correct this? How can I be changed more into this place? So building on that concept, I was like, hey, man, I want to see God do this work again, which he's doing, and you see it, he is doing it, this redemptive work. And it was this idea of redemption, 
the Redeemer uh, resonating. And it started, this is why it started. I'll give you quick two-minute insight. So we were in a meeting. We were having a leader meeting. We were talking, and we were um, talking about the prayer gathering. We were talking about what God's doing through it and uh, the struggles and the, the wrestling, the practical stuff, right? Like, man, it's hard on the flesh, no doubt. It's hard on the schedule. It's hard on our convenience and our comfort, and that's real. It's just real. Um, and so we're discussing this and, and talking about it. And we started talking about how, like, there are, you know, around us, there are literally temples to witchcraft and Satanism and people are buying houses and building establishments and they're praying, right? And they're releasing things. They're asking their gods, the demons they're interacting with, to do things, um, and I just started thinking about that. And we, anyway, that put this thought in my mind. So I was like, man, you know what? One night, it was like late at night. It was, I think it might've been after that meeting or maybe the next day. It was like pretty late, like maybe 12.30, one in the morning. Uh, no, like 10, it was like 10 p.m. And I'm driving by, I said, I wanna go find this place. There's this place in Salem, they bought a big house. So I drive by, I'm looking it up and Googling it and that led me to like their YouTube channel. And so now I'm looking up their YouTube channel. I'm watching some of their videos on the things they do and like the, the teachings and the prayer times and the spells they cast and the, you know, the way they call their guides and interact with them and there's instruction videos. And, <clears throat> and I went down there and I pulled up. And when I pulled up, it was... I just wanted to see it, and then I was like, hmm, I wonder if when I drive by, I'll feel something. <clears throat> but, like, I'm not a feeler. So, <clears throat> anyway, I pulled up, and I drove by slow, and then I turned around, I drove by again, and I parked right in front of it, and I was just looking at it. And it was completely empty. It was dark, like there was no one there. It was shut down, obviously. <clears throat> And my thoughts were, though, like, man, this is empty. Empty. There's nothing going on here right now at this moment. It's dark. The parking lot's empty. It's just an empty, unused building here. And I just started praying. Like, just suddenly, I wasn't praying towards a target or anything. I was just, like, talking to God, essentially, while I'm thinking about this. And I just started thinking, like, it really is empty. Like, there is nothing of value here. It's, it's void. It's, it offers nothing. It's empty. The things that go on in this house are empty and void and offer nothing. It's lifeless. It's dead. It's what I was looking at was a picture of its reality. And that people are coming there looking for something. And they're looking for some reality to what their heart knows of. Right? The scriptures declare that God places eternity in the hearts of men. Like, we're aware of it. We're aware of the spiritual realm. We're aware of all this stuff. And they're going there looking for something of value. And they're digging hard and they're trying to find it. And because they connect with something of reality, of substance, these demonic things and, and a community as well, they, they throw themselves further into it. But it's empty and it's void. And my thought and my instinct was far from thinking like, oh, we got to destroy this place. I started like interceding and getting, you know, 
all in the feels and emotions. Like, God, you need to save these people. Like, you need to show them what they're looking for. This place is empty. You could just show up. I started praying bold, crazy, like, like God, just show up in the middle of their meeting. Like, just appear. Just when they call out for these familiar spirits, like, let your Holy Spirit show up. Like, and I was thinking through, like, when Saul goes into the witch and he's trying to get, you know, Samuel and he shows up and she's, like, shocked and terrified and suddenly she sees truth which is that, oh, this disguised man is actually King Saul. And, and I'm just, these are the images in my mind as I'm praying. And I'm like thinking of the people I've watched on the YouTube videos. And like they're real people who need Jesus, just like you and me and people who are lost and they need Jesus. And then that kind of led my prayer to why are they here at this house when there's a house of God 10 minutes away? When there's houses of God all around that area, families who live and breathe and burn for Jesus according to our testimony, why are they going to this place? Why is this advertisement speaking louder? Like, why do they have better marketing is in my mind is what I'm thinking. Like, what is drawing them here instead of to the house of God? They're looking for something real, and instead they're there, and I just started thinking of the place as a prison. I was like, they're in bondage, and the prison guards there are not people. Like, we're not wrestling against flesh and blood. It's easy to get angry at the people who stand up with red faces and vile statements and, and pray curses against, you know, the children in the town or the church, and it's like... Great, deal with the demonic forces that you think are now going to try to do something. But those people, they're saying vain things and they're praying to gods that aren't gods. They're praying to things that have been stripped of their authority and power. The scripture is clear that every curse that is brought upon the people of God will be reversed and turned into a blessing. And we need to trust that God provides us in all those things and recognize that, man, how do we fight these things? What is the warfare of the Christian? It's not angry prayer. It's effectual and fervent prayer for the things God tells us to pray for, which is workers in the field for the harvest that can reach these people that are looking for love and, and acceptance and reality and being led astray. And then recognizing this, this is where the, the thought process went, like this, the power of prayer is, is really, I think it's lost on us because comfort. You know, we think of the last thing you felt genuinely desperate for. And I don't mean you just really wanted bad. I mean desperate, like people who don't know where their next meal is coming from and they have no means or ability of their own and no family, no relationship to help them. And they don't know when they're going to eat next. That's desperate. When you have a whole bunch of people to take care of and you're struggling your guts out and you don't know how you're going to make it work and you think you're going to lose everything. These type of situations create the type of prayer that becomes effectual and fervent. 
Here's the definition of effectual. Producing or able to produce a desired effect. General straight, right? That's what effectual means. It means that it's producing or it has the ability to produce a desired effect. Think about that in prayer. And here's fervent. The very first definition of fervent is very hot. The fervent sun. The next definition is exhibiting or marked by great intensity or feeling. A synonym for that would be zealous. So we're talking about great, intense, and full of feeling prayers that are effectual, meaning they have the ability to produce the desired result. And the scriptures say that the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man is powerful. It avails much. It produces much. And you're like, well, why? Well, we could do a whole teaching on prayer and why it's powerful, but it's simply this, because it is the act of you communicating with the only one you know that can do these things. And your prayer is demonstrating genuine faith and belief in that. That's why there is effectual fervency going on. Because it's, it's believed, it's genuine, it's, it's going to the person you know can do it. You don't have any belief in yourself. You're not able to do magic tricks or produce power. But when you are aligned with the Holy Ghost and you pray according to his will, the promise is this, you will have it. So there's this dynamic here. And I started praying about God redeeming the church so that the world would see and be redeemed. And so that God's work of redemption would be complete because that's the mission. God is redeeming all things unto himself. You are here in this place most likely because you were redeemed. Right? You had no value and no worth in and of yourself. Apart from God, you are literally worthless. And then God said, but I have value for you. And he offered you to come be part of his family with all the bells and whistles that come with that. And you were like, you see value in me? And he was like, yes. And you accepted. And here you are, full of the highest value you could have, the desire of God. There's nothing else that, that matters. You saying that's where we get our value from. Whether people think we're as cool as Tom Brady or not is irrelevant because they don't set the standard of value. Anyway, so here in this Christmas season we're coming up to, it's about the Redeemer coming, right? And redeeming mankind. And looking at this idea of why, why do we miss this? What are we... What are we missing? Why are we still so attached to the things we've been redeemed from? Or why do we still, instead of using that, that wealth, this, this natural human wealth that we have that's not going to last, instead of always thinking, how do we use this for the eternal purposes of God, we tend to just say, well, how do I use this for all the things I just need right away? And then whatever's left over, we'll use for the, the value of God, the, the glory of God. Maybe, maybe we do that. Sometimes we just say, let's pay the bills and whatever we have left over, let's use it for comfort and fun and pleasure and convenience. And like, there's no one in this room that's innocent of this. So we're just talking about like challenging ourselves. This is, this is a process. 
but we need to be fully engaged in this process to do this. So you guys know Santa Claus, Christmas season, based on a guy named St. Nick. He's a real guy, St. Nicholas, right? Uh, he, was, he was a saint and, or he's later referred to as a saint, but before that, he was a bishop of a place called Myrna. And he was a hardcore radical for God. He, the list of things God did supernaturally in his life are long, right? Um, really powerful things. And he had a real heart for those who were oppressed and needy and children, and that's where the whole legend came from. But as, we, as a lot of us know, especially if you've been in this community for a little bit, he's also famous for straight up smacking the heresy out of a heretic in the middle of a major council of the church. Right? Like, this guy Arius was polluting the church by trying to convince the church and the empire that Jesus wasn't God, that he was just the firstborn creation of God. And at one point during the council, he stood up, he couldn't take it anymore, and he went and smacked him. And uh, he got defrocked for it, meaning he got punished. Um, but we can all relate to Santa Claus sometimes, right? Sometimes you get to that place, you got to do so, you feel like you got to do something more than just argue. <laughs> but this guy, this is what I'm saying, this guy that has that cool story and stuff, like that fervency, right, that maybe expressed itself a little bit not Christ-like in that moment, uh, was so passionate for the glory of God in that moment and for the power, like, like the, there's no redemption if Christ isn't God. And here's this guy who he's watching literally convince church leaders in the church that that is the truth. And one of his, his contemporaries, his good friends, Athanasius, was there working hard to convince them. And so during this Christmas season, this idea of redemption was at, at stake. It was the centerpiece of what was at stake. And luckily, these guys prevailed, and Athanasius like, did his thing, and, and Arius was thrown out, and the, the deity of Christ prevailed. But he had some really impressive thoughts as to what went wrong and how we even got to that place. And he refers to it as, as this inward-looking thing for the body. And this is, I want to read this to you because I think if we understand this, you will see where the battle is within each of us and why Christ tells us we need to take up our cross daily. Why Paul literally teaches us we need to crucify the flesh. Okay, it's critical. So he's talking in this, this passage. Great, I didn't even bookmark it. I'm so prepared. I'll find it because I have a note written in it with the word wow next to it. All right, here we are. <clears throat> so his, his idea is this, that when God creates Adam and Eve, he created them physically in a body just like us. But it was never intended to be the focus of anything. It was just the vehicle that would allow the soul to do all that it was meant to do. Right? 
And so the soul here is like who you are, right? You're in a body, but you are who you are. And when your body dies, you don't change who you are. You're still you, okay? And it's, it's that idea that your body is the vehicle. It's the tool that your soul drives from the inside. <clears throat> and that at the fall, what changed was that, that our soul stopped looking outward from the body at the things in front of it and began to look at itself and became enslaved by the needs and desires of the body itself instead of the body serving the soul and its desires that were looking towards God at the time. <clears throat> so from that, he writes these things. He says, in this way then, as has been said, did the creator fashion the human race and such did he wish, to, wish for it to remain that way. But human beings, contemptuous of the better things, and shrinking from their apprehension, sought rather what was closer to themselves. And what was closer to them was the body and its sensations. That's his first statement. This is going to be hard. Athanasius is from like 300 AD. And this was translated from then. So try to track. It might be hard to, to follow. Like I have to read it two or three times sometimes to really grasp what he's saying. But I'll, I'll do the, the amplified version. So they turn their minds away from intelligible reality, which he means the things of God, the things that are actually intelligent versus the things apart from God, which he calls irrational and stupid. So he's like, they turn their minds away from intelligible reality and began to consider themselves. And by considering themselves and holding to the body and the other senses and deceived as it were in their own things, they fell into desire for themselves preferring their own things to the contemplation of divine things, spending their time in these things and being unwilling to turn away from things close at hand, they imprisoned in bodily pleasures their souls, which had become disordered and mixed up with all kinds of desires while they wholly forgot the power they received from God in the beginning. He says, one could also see that this was so from the first created man, as the Holy Scriptures relate of him. For he also, as long as he fixed his mind on God and contemplation of him, kept away from the contemplation of the body. But when, by the counsel of the serpent, he abandoned his thinking of God and began to consider himself, then they fell into the desire of the body and knew that they were naked and knowing became ashamed. They knew that they were not so much naked of clothing, but that they had become naked of the contemplation of divine things and that they had turned their minds in the opposite direction. For abandoning the consideration of and desire for the one and the real, from then on they gave themselves up to various and separate desires of the body. That's some amazing insight. But I want you to realize he wrote that before the New Testament had been considered the New Testament. All he had was the Old Testament and some letters that were swirling around the church at that time that they were trying to decide if they were written by God and if they should be included in the Bible or not. 
And Athanasius writes this, and this is a cool side note, it's primarily thanks to him that we have the New Testament we have. He was the first one to present the full 66 books that we now have today as the Bible for consideration and saying, this is, these are the ones I believe are the inspired word of God, and this is why. And in the council, they agreed on it, and now we have our Bible. This guy writes this. He had this type of insight, and I'm saying when we look at this, it's, it's literally what we see, and it's what Paul goes on to teach, right? This idea that, that we struggle because we're so inward-focused. Think about this. We want to help so many people, right? There's so many of us that want to help so many people. And then we just, we can't. The need is too great for us as individuals. But it's not too great for God who takes five loaves and three fish and feeds thousands. Not just once. He did it multiple times. He really wanted this truth and this principle, this idea to be established in his disciples. He really wanted the truth that God would provide all our needs and he would provide everything we need to do what he would do. And he demonstrated it for them multiple times in an attempt to say, get out. Get out of your own body, your own perspective. Get out of your own needs. Get out of your own desires. Look out. Begin to see the things of God and what he can do and what he will do. And if you allow him to put you in these places of need, you will also see him provide for those needs. That does not mean take a vow of poverty, but it means put yourself in a place where people are now in need around you. In other words, step out to serve others who are in great need and trust God to provide. The weight's not on you. Do you understand? It's not on you. But as a son and co-heir and co-partner in the mission, you will feel the weight. You will connect with the heart of God and you will feel those fervent feelings. And you will desire with your heart to see this happen and your prayers from that place will become effectual. And we're going to see God move. And there's going to be provision and sustenance in the house of God again so that the people who are looking for these things in those empty dark houses will recognize it's not there, it's here. But that has to start by people who are trusting God. Here's some things I wrote to, to wrap it up, to bring this point home. I said, we live in a church box, kind of like this bubble, because we've been blessed we live in the most blessed nation in the history of ever. The majority of us have been born and raised never actually knowing true need. Our children, most of our children in this place have never known true need. They've known, never known anything less than abundance. And so it creates this kind of bubble of, of protection. But we've been called to be fishers of men. And our children have been called to be fishers of men. And those men are in dark and dangerous and rough places that exist outside of this place. Jesus sets this example where he sanctified himself Right? He made sure that he was right before God and he was set. 
30 years of grounding, and then to fulfill all righteousness, he goes to get baptized so that the witness of God can come, and then he goes out into the wilderness to fast and pray for 40 days to pursue God, his will, and his power, so that when he left the wilderness, he could now do the things God asked of him. He had passed the tests. He had been firmly established in the love of God, the will of God, the mission of God, and now he was ready to do the work of God. And so from that place, after first really bringing himself to that place, he then went to eat and drink with drunkards and prostitutes and sinners where he would shine as a light that called those people around him out of that darkness into the light he was walking in. That has to happen. But for some reason, we see... The opposite happening. We've got like people who are like, yeah, I want to reach the world. But then the every, I don't want to say every time, but so often they go and try to reach the world and then they become like the world. And they fall into sin and they get dragged back into their old ways. Like something's amiss. But it doesn't change the call. We still have to do it. It's the command. It's the call. Right? Like, just think about this. These are self-assessments between us and God. Do we inconvenience ourselves now to reach out, to serve others in need, to help people meet Jesus, to get them established in the faith? Paul rebukes an entire church. He said, you should be teachers, but instead you still need milk. The church, the people who should be the ones revealing the glory of God to the world and shining that light. Instead, we're the ones who haven't mastered the teachings of Christ or incarnated them in our lives. Some of us don't even know the teachings and won't take the time to learn them. Never mind mastering them and never mind like becoming the incarnation of the teachings that Christ has given us, how to live. We don't have sound doctrine in the church and we're like, there's so many of us not even pursuing it. And the world desperately needs you to do that. The world needs it. There are rough and hardened men and women out there, broken, burdened, lost, buried people who need your unique life experience to come to them, but to come to them from a sanctified place from a place that has been rooted and grounded in the word and person of God so that you can go back into those dark places and shine and drag them out of it. And you present them to God so that he can be glorified in their eyes, their lives, their not. We have to get outside our bubble though and but it's true. One, we have to use, take advantage of the bubble to become grounded and rooted. Master the teachings. Become the living embodiment of Christ's teachings so that when you interact with your clients and you interact with your patients and you interact with your classmates and you interact with your families during these holiday seasons and you interact with the lost in the world, wherever you go, parents, while your kids are in sports, wherever, anything, that you can't help but exude the glory of God. We're still so focused on ourselves and our own needs. 
Like Athanasius said, we're, we're bodily focused. We're sensationally focused. And our own healing to the exclusion of obeying the commands to look out for the interests of others and to carry other people's burdens. What if we lived for his glory and we came to him for our rest, but we trusted him to provide us for what we need to meet other people's needs and whatever that looks like. Philippians says this in Philippians 2, 3 to 4. He says, we have a great deal to say about this, and it is difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. This is what he's saying to the church. Although by this time you ought to be teachers, you still need someone to teach you the basic principles of God and his revelation again. You need milk, not solid food. Now, everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he's still an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. This is what Paul's saying to a church that should have been already established. And he was saying something happened. You were on this track, but somewhere you got inward focus, persecution, need, whatever happened, you lost this. And now, instead of pursuing the establishment and mastering of the word that was given to you, you still need to be taught it again and again. And so he's not saying this to judge them and condemn them. He's saying this to expose it so that they can address it. Because there's a world of people out there that need Jesus. And when these people come to Jesus, they are going to be rough. You understand? They're going to be rough. It's like this. Guys, I train my children to walk in righteousness as best as I can. To walk godly. To walk in godliness both scripturally and culturally, right? I keep them away from, from certain movies and TV shows and music when they're young and as they grow on purpose. I don't allow swearing in my house or I don't do things, right? Because that's something culturally that communicates things in a lot of ways. And culture changes all the time. But the point is, whatever the culture's saying, you do this. But at some point, you stop hiding them or protecting them from those things. And hopefully it's at a point where they've already been rooted and grounded in the principles and morals you've wanted to teach them. That hopefully they've been shaped by that so that when they go out and at work and they hear people saying bad words, they're not shocked and dismayed and put away and thinking like, oh my God, I'm around bad people. So that when they hear music and they hear other people singing these songs, raunchy songs about, you know, intimacy and sex and different things. They're not put off and like, what is that? But that they recognize darkness from the place of light they come from. They recognize the contrast. And in it, they easily see and recognize the emptiness of it. They see the people trapped by those things. And instead of thinking bad, dirty people, they're thinking Empty, needy people. Thank God I come fully loaded with what they need. And they're not afraid to touch the dirt. Right? They're not afraid to go and meet the dirt and be with the dirt. But 
The children are never going to get there because if you just turn on YouTube and watch your Christian leaders out there, they're terrified of dirty people. They're terrified of bad people. I just watched a YouTube video yesterday and I turned it off. I got angry. I had to repent. I wanted this guy to be like beheaded. I wanted an angel to come down and just remove this guy. He starts yelling from his pulpit. This obnoxious, oh my gosh, God, help me. <laughs> oh, it's so like, this guy, and he's known for this. It's just, ugh. He starts yelling about how, and he's got this big church, like thousands of people. And he starts yelling about how they've identified six witches that exist in their congregation. And they know their names and their addresses. And he starts yelling at them. Starts saying, we cast you out. You're exposed. You will not have victory here. You are. And he starts talking to them like they're demons. And he says, some of you are even in our small groups. Two of you are even in a small group with my wife. <laughs> like, what, what are you doing? The most passive-aggressive, disgusting thing I've ever seen. Heavens forbid evil people show up in the church and meet Jesus. Can you imagine Paul going into Corinth or Ephesus? These places that were like dominated. They had giant statues and temples to goddesses and gods and demons. That if they came into one of his gatherings, that he would speak to them that way? Call them out as idol-worshiping demon witches, sorcerers, whatever? What kind of fear? In, like, I just kept saying, in my, I said, how do you become a leader without reading the Bible, without knowing the word of God, without knowing how Jesus addressed the wicked? Do you know who Jesus attacked? Those preachers. The people who stood up and instilled fear in ridiculous teachings and taught their own ideas as if they were the teachings of God. You know who Jesus went to and cast demons out of and served and loved? The demon-possessed people. The ones he invited to come and listen to him as he spoke and preached from mountains and hilltops and, and vineyards. The one who said, hey, you... All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me. We're just, we're, God is straightening us out. Okay? And that's the work he's doing. And this is the deep work he's doing. He's making us faithful in little things now so that we can become faithful in the big things as they come. This place, because God is doing something, and new people are coming in all the time, are going to bring people in. And they are going to be vile in your eyes. Vile God mockers, blasphemers, desecrators, drug addicts, alcoholics, crazy ideas. Hopefully, witches. I hope every witch and warlock and seance person in that house I drove by comes to this church. 
Listen. I don't know how else to say this, but if God is truly for us, who can be against us? If God is on our side, who should we fear? What can man do to us? Do you believe the living God lives and dwells in you and in us as a body, as the temple of the Holy Ghost? Do you believe that when Jesus, filled with this same spirit, walked by demon-possessed people, they cried out in terror? Then the only reason you have to fear a demon, if you don't believe, you are filled with the Holy Spirit. If you're not, then you are fair game. Do you see the urgency to make sure we are right with God? Because the mission is not going to wait. The mission is not waiting for you to take your time and decide if you are God's or not. To decide if you're living for Christ or not. To decide if everything you do is for the glory of God or your own glory. But if you're giving your life to Jesus, if you've decided this is it, not perfection, intention. Okay? You can mess up every day till you die, and it doesn't matter. As long as your intention is to pursue God and bring him glory. Do you understand? That's it. The Bible says the righteous man will fall seven times, and that's the number of completion for these people. Meaning, like, the righteous man can fall completely, and the Lord will lift him up. Because our hope isn't in our ability. Our hope is in him. And if our hope is in him, guess what you'll stop doing often? You'll stop falling. Okay, but it's not what you're striving for. You're not looking inwardly. We're forgetting the body that we've been given and we're looking to the God who we've been given to follow and we have to live that way. So, how do we shift this up? I just want to give you a quick example as we go into prayer because God has given us a tangible opportunity. Do you understand? Do you guys, raise your hand if you think it was God's intention to leave Israel in the wilderness. I can't see the other side, but if you're raising your hand, put it down quickly before anyone sees. That's the wrong answer. <clears throat> he did not intend to leave them in the wilderness, but he intentionally brought them through the wilderness. He needed them to experience a place of need for the supernatural. He needed a place to show them who he was and what he can do so that they would then pursue that. The wilderness was the place where God was showing up to demonstrate who he is, what he can do, why he does it, how reliable and faithful he is. But then he brought them into the promised land for them to now execute that and live from that place, not to keep pursuing those things. The promised land was to provision so that they didn't need the manna anymore. Do you understand? The, the tabernacle and the temple was the dwelling place of God so that they didn't need the cloud and the fire pillar any longer. He brought them to a place he demonstrated his greatness. They stood in awe. They experienced it. They were like, you are awesome. This is amazing. And then from there, he expected them to now live and pursue him as a result. 
there's a lot of confusion and there's a lot of feelings, a lot of stuff mixed up in this prayer thing that we have going on here. A lot of it. Okay? And if you're someone who feels that way and you haven't come and talked to a leader that you trust can give you some insight on it, well, then maybe you're not looking for answers. Maybe you're kind of comfortable in the place of complaint because it keeps you distant enough, then you don't have to make that hard decision of whether you're going to engage or not. I understand that's the human experience. Been there many times. <clears throat> but if you really do not feel clear and you don't have the answers and you don't understand, you should ask. But I'm going to give you a snapshot of what I see God doing because some people are thinking one thing, some people thinking another. I've heard, I think, seven different variations of, of the critiques. I feel those critiques in my own heart sometimes. I wrestle with God. I pray through it. And I do what I believe God wants me to do. But the prayer thing, the reason why it's 24-7, is not in an attempt to manufacture or pretend something's happening that isn't happening anymore. And it's not an attempt to earn some prize or some recognition to the world out there. Look what we can do in New England. It is solely, right now, this is the motivation, guys. We have leaders that God has given us and we've trusted them this far, right? We don't trust them because they're perfect and they have a perfect track record. Raise your hand if you're perfect and you have a perfect track record because we'll start following you. <clears throat> but it is very clear to those of us who have been here and around that they are the people God has put here to lead. And God leads us in many ways through their leadership. And they believe right now, very strongly, very firmly, that God has asked this of them and this community, that it is unto something bigger. We now have to choose what to do before God, to follow that, to be part of that, to contribute, to be a part as much as possible or not. That's your decision before God. But that is not... We're not after it so that we can say it. That is the reason, okay? That there is a strong belief this is what God is asking of us. And that God launched this through a supernatural encounter time where everyone was here every night till endless hours of the night just going all out after it. You guys remember that? Okay, every night, parking lot packed, place packed, middle of the day packed, Morning time sometimes packed. It was like a two-week period where it was just so undeniable that everyone just wiped their schedules and was like, this is where we are. This is what we're doing. Nothing else is as important as this. And then, in the midst of that, especially towards the beginning, the call was to accommodate God and what that meant. And that had different meanings to so many of us, what it meant. People made drastic life changes in response to what God was saying in order to accommodate what he was doing and the fact that he was present for a purpose. 
And now, because we've tasted and seen and experienced a visitation from God in a real undeniable way, we are to pursue that. I want you to understand, not pursue a feeling, not to pursue an experience that's inward looking like for our own body and our own sensations and our own pleasure and our own reward. No, we're now to pursue the fact that we recognize God will visit. God will show up and rock hearts. Let's pursue him to do that. What does that look like? Prayer. Jesus said this, quoting two Old Testament prophets. He went into the temple and he cleansed the temple because the temple had become something other than what God had originated its purpose. I'm wrapping this up right now. And he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, yet it's become a den of thieves. And he quotes Isaiah and Jeremiah in one sentence. Both of them, two different prophets at two different periods, commenting on the purpose of the house of God. And then Jesus brings them together and quotes his purpose. The house of God is meant to be a house of prayer for the nation. And that's a whole conversation and discussion. But in Heronhut, in the 1600s, there was this 100-year-long prayer gathering, it, 24-7, for 100 years. Now, in our context, those of you who have been part of this, that becomes even more impressive now, right? As we've seen the struggle and the challenge to, to do 24-7 for even less than one year, and they did it for 100 years. Here's a little excerpt I want you to read so that you can see kind of the the common place. In the spring of 1727, during a season of internal turmoil within the community, I want you to get this. The church there, the gathering of people, there was internal turmoil. There was theological conflict. There was people who came in because it was a place for refugees to come and they would join this movement and follow God. But they came with all sorts of different theologies and ideas. And so there was wrestling there about... What, what the correct understanding of the scriptures were. And it was turmoil. So in response, some of the Moravians began praying for fresh revival in their midst. They began to pray for God to show up to, to remedy this turmoil. And by the late summer, almost 50 Moravians had committed to pray for one hour a day, one after the other, for 24 consecutive hours, seven days a week. From that, spiritual awakening soon came to the Moravians, causing their little group to grow and drawing more refugees from all over Europe to them. As amazing as it seems today, the Moravians kept this up for 100 years. As is so often the case in church history, the onset of revival only deepened the Moravians' commitment to the power of prayer. As amazing as it seems today, this happened then. In fact, it has become known as the 100-year prayer meeting. While no other known group of Christians has replaced the Moravian century-long prayer event, countless churches and other ministries, often inspired by the example of Moravians, have hosted 24-hour prayer meetings for revival, missions, or some other priority they're looking for God to move in. Here's my point. There was turmoil. They began to pray. 
And their prayer was, we're just going to pray until. Right? So 50 different people carried the full weight of this. If you do the math, that means just over every two days, they prayed, took another prayer block. So they're taking prayer blocks every two days. And they kept it going. And in response to that fervent, effectual prayer, motivated by wanting God to show up to address what was going on, God showed up in what they called a revival of love, where they felt like when God showed up, communion and the love of God just became the easiest thing to live in. And it resolved all of their turmoil, and they became so united that they launched the greatest missions movement the world has seen till this day. But in response to God showing up to their prayers, guess what it did? It inspired them to the power of prayer, to the fact that God responds to hungry people. And God showed up and developed that prayer movement to hundreds and hundreds of people who now gathered. And it was passed on generation to generation for a hundred years. And during that 100 years, there was a new church planted globally every day. The greatest missions movement the church has seen came from this sustained prayer movement that did not come from them saying, let's sustain revival and when, when God's not visiting any longer, we'll just keep pretending revival's happening. Or it did not come from a place where they were like, man, if we do 24-7 prayer, we'll get so many new people to our church because they'll think that's so cool. It was just simply, we need God. And we need prayer. Prayer is what God says to do unceasingly. Now, as an individual, you can't talk unceasingly. But as a community, we can pray unceasingly. As a community. And right now, guys, this is where it's at. I just want to give you some imagery. Right now, this 24-7 prayer movement is being kept alive due to a few people who are standing their ground on the lentil field while the entire army has retreated that way. And they're holding their ground, trusting that God will bring a great victory. And when that great victory happens, those people will come back for the plunder, for the, for the rewards that has been earned by the people that said, we need to seek God and pray and be part of this. Who you are is up to you. That's it. I can't repeat this enough. There is literally no judgment. It would be opposite to the purpose of what God's doing to try to judge or manipulate or, or blackball or anything. Like, do what you believe God has on your heart, but just know that there are people who are believing this and standing here, and that's their heart motive behind it. The heart motive behind it is not to try to pretend we're still in some revival, like, it, like the first two weeks. The heart motive is not to try to build some man-made kingdom that says it's cool. The heart motive is there are rough people out there who need Jesus. There are witches and warlocks and houses towards Satanism being built all around us. And the house of God needs to be burning brighter than all those things. And the house of God will burn when there's a prayer furnace in the midst of it that is sustained by the heart and presence of God who says, these people are hungry, I will show up. These people are working to, to accomplish the mission of God, meeting the needs of people, I will show up. People are coming to this place looking for the life of God, I will show up. 
It's our call to wrestle with God and say, God, what's my part? What's my part? What's my part in this mission? Provide for me when it's hard. Provide for me the grace and the strength and the ability to allow my flesh to die and my soul to look outward instead of inward. Provide for me the ability to trust you with what I need so that I can give what I have to others' needs. Give me the ability to carry the burden for others and to look out for not only my own interests but also other people's interests. Make me a representative of you that makes disciples the way you did, Jesus. Amen. Let's begin to pray into that right now. Just begin to worship God. Just right now, begin to worship God and ask Him to produce this in us. Ask Him to challenge your perspectives. Ask Him to challenge where your heart's at and to draw you with His loving kindness to a place where we begin to see better, where we begin to respond from what we see. Recognizing we are a group of imperfect people that God is choosing to use and we will see his glory because there's nothing glorious about us. Jesus, do it. Do what only you can do in our midst for your own glory. For your glory among the nations, around the people. God, bring in the lost people rightly represent you. Destroy the works of wickedness around us in darkness, God, and let your light shine. 